The forecast is brought to you by Callaway. Callaway's new Apex irons are the ultimate forge player's distance iron. How much feel, distance, and control have been forged to perfection to deliver category-defining performance. Callaway's 360 face cups generate industry-leading distance and unmatched feel, and will get every golfer's attention. Tungsten weighting in each iron fine-tunes launch, trajectory, and delivers tremendous control. See perfection in every shot with the new Apex at your local golf retailer or visit callawaygolf.ca and see what makes Callaway the number one irons in golf. Welcome to the Forecast Podcast. I'm Post Media Golf Writer John McCarthy here with Sun Media Golf Writer Dave Hilson. How you doing, John? I'm doing great. This is the first ever Forecast Podcast, and this week we're going to go back to the RBC Canadian Open. We're going to talk a bit about the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, and later on we're going to have an interview with Brennan Little, Gary Woodland's caddy. Just won the U.S. Open. He was also on Mike Rear's bag at the 2003 Masters, so he's going to join us for an interview. But right away, let's go back to the RBC Canadian Open. Oh, it was a fantastic week, John. You know you were there. We were both there all week. There's been a date change. It's early June now, which couldn't have worked out any better, really. It's right before the U.S. Open, so you've got a lot of players that want to get their game in shape. Uh, Rory McIlroy was the winner. Couldn't ask for a better one, almost. Uh, the only possible better uh, ending would have been to have a Canadian break that uh, Pat Fletcher drought that goes all the way back to 1954. But you know, previously to this year, the Canadian Open was getting lost a little bit between the British Open and then a WGC event. And a lot of guys were just skipping it. They just didn't want to come back from England after playing or uh, from the UK after playing in those tough conditions to play in Canada and then going to a WGC. So it, it, it was it was great. Yeah, no, I think it was uh, obviously they're probably folks at RBC and Golf Canada are still pinching themselves how, how perfectly it, it turned out. You get four nice days of weather, the first four nice days since like last August or something. But it, yeah, it was a great event. It's funny. I think Adam Hadwin, his game right now is uh, it's rounding into form. I wouldn't be surprised to see him, you know, top tenning in some of his next few events and contending again. He's, he, I think he's putting it all together. Well, he got a nice little uh, bonus prize from the Canadian Open. Yeah. Going to the British Open, he'll be at Royal Port Rush. Obviously, that's awesome for Canadian golf. Awesome for us. I'll be at the I'll be at the British Open and at least I'll have a Canadian to chase around there. So that's great. It's funny. One memory I have from this year's RBC Canadian Open. It's not it's not the uh, nicest, fondest memory, but it was an Adam Hadwin round. I was I was uh, following him and, and looking to get him for an interview after. And he was playing with Sergio Garcia. And as I'm waiting for Hadwin to come out of the scoring tent, um, Sergio walks by and his manager or, or someone in his team is, is right behind him and the manager says Sergio uh, do we have any plans for today and Sergio says the plan is to get the hell out of here and it's just it's sort of more and more that's what we're getting at a Sergio he's a guy that used to be my favorite golfer and it used to sort of be there was the brooding dark Sergio there was uh, the happy uh, almost childlike uh, Sergio the one that everybody fell in love with but now we're getting it we get a little more of the brooding guy than we want I've had similar experiences with Sergio as well uh, the first time I ever, I mean, he was a favorite of mine for a long time. The first time I ever saw him, uh, I was back in the late 90s covering a golf tournament in Japan, the Taiheo Visa Classic, which was part of the European swing as well as the Japan Tour. And it was for a pro-am. And, you know, Sergio was just clearly enjoying himself and was so friendly to all the people that he was playing with, mostly Japanese. He really tried to engage with them. 
And yeah, from that point on, I really took a shine to him. In, in stark comparison, by the way, to uh, Elazabal, who was also in that tournament and didn't speak to anybody during his pro, pro-am. But I saw Sergio meltdown at last year's Canadian Open. He had a stretch of three bad holes where he hit a bad shot into a green. It wasn't bad. It was just a little bit loose, but he picked up his divot. He punted it about 10 or 15 yards down the fairway. Then on the next tee, he got into a bit of an argument with a fan for taking a picture, even though actually nobody heard it. And then up at the green, I don't know if it was the same hole or the next hole, he had hit a sprinkler head after a good shot, which put his ball into the rough. He then had his chip out of the rough. He didn't hit it well, and he slammed his bag into the ground. Uh, it was not a good round for him. He missed the cut. I asked for an interview with him. They refused. This year, uh, I heard the same comment as you did at Hamilton, and then uh, he also got into another little bit of a argument, not an argument exactly, with a, a fan on the eighth tee, a par three, the uh, fan, again, a bit of a loose shot, but not a bad shot, but it pulled it a bit left of the pin. The fan says to him, well, that's all right, Sergio. And Sergio sarcastically said back, oh, yeah, it's all right. It's on the green. And then he walked off the tee box and slammed his his iron into the ground. So, yeah, it's it's getting harder to, to, yeah. to like. I mean, him. there was that awesome military flyover with all the, the jets at, uh, at that Hamilton. Was, that was fantastic. <laughs> and I, I was watching Hadwin was sort of enjoying it all and looking at it. But I don't think Sergio looked up from the ground once. It was sort of the plane just went over his head. And, you know, my... My first sad story of journalism was he was, when I was growing up, a teenager, my favorite golfer, and he's blocked me on Twitter, which I didn't even know anyone was actually reading my Twitter account. But very impressive. Yeah, very impressive. He uh, At the Players' Championship, I was looking for an interview with him after his round, and I sort of followed him around uh, around the corner at the clubhouse, and he picked up his putter and snapped it over his knee and then threw it in the garbage. And then two fans sort of ran over and picked it up and were running around like it was a trophy. So I took a picture of it and sure. posted it on Twitter. But then next thing you know, my my tweet get, ends up on the Golf Channel and Sergio ends up blocking me. So that was sort of my uh, the, the end of my childhood hero now. I'm blocked <laughs> on Twitter. I don't even know what, he, what he's saying. You've got to wonder how much that the way he carries himself on the golf course has limited him. Because remember back, you know, a decade or more ago, every, you know, he was going to be the guy that challenged Tiger. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's obviously that passion. It, he can use it to his advantage, but more often than not, sort of the brooding nature of him has, has probably cost him uh, a better career than, than he, uh, he should have had a better career than he's had. But the Canadian Open on a whole was obviously a great success. It's our national open. What would you like to see with our national open going forward? Is it, uh, do you think this is a good, Start to the new date. Fantastic venue. Uh, great date. I think the only problem we have is that after beating up uh, Glen Abbey for being too easy, Dustin Johnson won it last year. He was minus 23, while Rory came very close this year, minus 22. I think people thought Hamilton was going to play a lot harder than it did. Kind of a similar setup to Pebble Beach in a way with uh, the narrow fairways, thick, rough, small greens that were supposed to be fast, but weren't. It was wet out there. So the conditions were actually easy for the guys. They hit the ball and it stuck in the fairway where it landed. It didn't roll off into the rough. So Rory ended up at minus 22. And I guess the question is, how hard should the Canadian Open be? It's funny. I used to, I mean, if it was a top tour event, if everyone wanted to come to the Canadian Open because it was a uh, national open, then I think you'd want to make it as as hard as you can. I think 
in its new spot, which is a fantastic date on the schedule. But right before the U.S. Open, I just don't think you can uh, – you don't want it in National Open – uh, you don't want to be, these guys don't want to beat themselves up in Canada and then go down the street and beat themselves up at the US Open the next week. I just can't imagine that's, uh, that would help with getting some great stars here. And the tournament is going to be going forward. It's a bunch of different things to a bunch of different players. If you're a Canadian, it's probably as big as the PGA Championship. It's, it's almost a major in their minds. If you are, uh, if you're just coming in to use it as a tune up, then it's just a tune up. So it's, it's a tournament that's going to be a different thing to a different player, depending on, on where you're coming from. And I think that's pretty much where it's going to be. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think we have to be kind of realistic about it. As Canadians, of course, it's very, very important tournament to us. But it's not what it used to be when Nicholas and Trevino and those guys were coming up to play. It's not. It just does not have that status anymore. So if you want to attract the big names, you have to do things that are going to get them here. Obviously, the date changed helped a lot. But like you said, they don't want to get beaten up two weeks in a row. So No, no, they don't. Well, one guy that was at the Canadian Open who was using it just as a tune-up was Brooks Kepka, Um, And he told us that right in his press conference. He said, uh, I don't really care how I play here. It just matters how I'm playing as I you know, walk out the door. Um, what did you think about that comment? Were you cool with that? Well, not really. I mean... <laughs> You, you would like to think that the players that are coming to your tournament are there to win it. And I, certainly the fans want to think that everybody that's in the tournament is there to win it. So what I would much rather have Brooks Kepka coming in with the mindset that he's going to win the Canadian Open. On the other hand, I like his honesty. I, I, I'd rather have a guy tell the truth and than just lie and placate us. So. Yeah. Yeah. And Roy McIlroy, I mean, I think he had probably the, uh, the the better attitude of the two because he was saying, well, well, it works for Rory because he was saying this is a prestigious Open. It's an old tournament. And he obviously truly cares about the history of National Opens. And, and he went out and won the tournament. So it obviously mattered to him. But with Brooks Kepka, he's sort of – he's shown us that he is – almost only cares about majors, which is not a bad thing when you've won four of the your last nine or whatever that he's entered. Um, he's come in first, second, first, second in his last four majors. So, I mean, every player on tour should be terrified of Brooks Kepka. Yes. And that takes us to the U.S. Open where he came in second to Gary Woodland. It was, uh, I think it was a fantastic tournament. I think sometimes when a 35-year-old um, first time major winner wins the event, you leave thinking, oh, you know, I wish we had, had got a better champion, but not this year. I think he was a great champion. It was very entertaining. There was drama on Sunday. So I was happy with how that US Open went. Yeah, it was kind of nice to see Gary uh, finally get over the hump, so to speak. His uh, game has is, is really come together. It used to just be a big power hitter, but he's sort of got everything working now. And I thought it was so fantastic uh, to see him pull out that wedge on the 71st hole on the green, I mean, and uh, chip it up next to the cup instead of how far away was he? It was 50 feet, I think. Yeah. So that that took a lot of nerve. It's, so to win a major, it seems like you have to get these these almost, not luck, but these things that just seem to happen almost like from the from the stars. It's like he had practiced chipping off of greens because when he came on tour, he was not a good chipper. And his coach at the time said, you, we should practice chipping off greens. It'll really you know, help you with your stroke. So what are the chances you get to the end of the tournament and you have this very rare shot that you probably have hit you know, hundreds, if not thousands of times. So it's, it's almost things like that that you need to win a major. Yeah. 
he actually said afterwards that he there was no hesitation from him whatsoever doing that. So yeah, I think I actually think that the the three wood going for the green on fourteen was the shot of the tournament because there was a lot of other options. I mean, you could have laid up, but Brooks Kepka was one hole ahead. He missed a birdie putt, but if he had made that birdie putt, they would have been tied. Yeah. So I think that was the moment of the tournament. I think the the uh, chip off the green will be more remembered but i think you're right he had almost no options there because a good putt from there is what 10 feet maybe and then so i think sometimes when you have no options you're forced to play a shot it almost it makes a shot a bit easier because there's no second guessing if it's you know really your only option and you're right about that three wood on 14 though because i think that there was a little back and forth on that between mm-hmm. with him and his caddy yeah we'll talk to brendan about that a little later and find out yeah and it was uh about two feet on the right side, so it could have it could have easily gone the other way, but it worked out so well for him. I think Kepka's turned into a very interesting interview, which is not what he was a couple of years ago. It almost seemed like he was uh, he was more like a team sport athlete, like you'd get sort of the same answers you'd get from a basketball player, football player, something like that. But the the more comfortable he's got in his own skin, he's he's still giving you answers you don't expect, and they might not be you know doesn't seem like they're the thoughtful answers you might get out of a guy like Rory or somebody. But what you're getting is exactly how he feels and what he thinks he needs to do to win these majors. And sometimes it comes across as short or it's like, a you know, he says that it's a major. You just can't overthink it. You just get out there, do it and get over it, get over it. So it's actually, I find it very interesting now that this is the guy that's winning more majors than anyone else. He's got a different attitude than a lot of these guys. So I'm, uh, I'm all on the Brooks interview. I think he is, uh, he's one of the most interesting guys in the sport now. I wonder if people just need a little bit of time to get used to him because prior to these, these, uh, you know, major wins, his only other win previous, well, he's won, he's won the CJ Cup. Mm-hmm. Since then, but previously he'd won the Waste Management yeah. Phoenix Open in 2015. People didn't really know him, you know. He won that tournament, and then suddenly he's winning all these majors, and people are like, "Who, you know, who is this guy? Kind of is he real? Is yeah. is this is this guy as good as he seems?" So, I think, you know, if he keeps winning, people are gonna <laughs> people are gonna come around. Yeah, I think. I mean, even Nicholas at the beginning of his career. Fans didn't love him because fans loved Arnie. And yep. here is this young guy who didn't seem to have the personality of Arnie, uh, you know, winning these events. And I'm not, we're not comparing Brooks Kepka to Jack Nicholas. Although, actually, now that I think about it, I did notice at this US Open, I think there's almost more reason to fear Kepka now that he seems to have figured out that if he doesn't have his A game, he's willing to just, he's not going to force the issue. He's going to hang around, hang around, and be there on Sunday. And now that he's added that to his game, so we now know if he's playing great, he's probably going to win, win the tournament. If he's not playing great and he's willing to just wait, 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 and see if he's there Sunday, that opens up a, a more doors to win more tournaments. And I mean, Nicholas had 18 majors and 19 runner-ups. And for the life of me growing up, I couldn't understand how a man could could do that. And I'm wondering if it, it's a bit of the same as when Nicholas realized he didn't have his A game, he probably just was making sure he hangs around and hang around on Sunday, let the rest of the field melt away. And you've heard some of the same comments from Brooks. And if if he's adding that to the arsenal, it's like these guys, they should be afraid. Yeah. Well, he certainly walks around the golf course as if he's, you know, when he's when he's into it, as if he's going to win. Yeah. You know? And he was in the field last week at the Travelers. Um, he, which was which was a bit of a surprise to me, actually, that he was in there. Yeah. But it wasn't a bad – it was a pretty decent field. So Yeah, yeah. And he uh, – he played his last round in under three hours, first out of the gate, 
Um, from what I hear, he didn't spend too much time on the range. So he did say before the week he was going to try something new and uh, try to focus like it's a major, but that's almost impossible to do. You either care about something, you know, deeply or you don't. It's almost like in the NFL when a team's made the playoffs and they have a game against another team that is needs to win to get in. You always the team says they're going to try. We're going to play all our starters, but you can't, you can't no. pretend to try. Like you're going to, if it matters that much to you, the, the people that care about it are the ones that are going to perform well. The guy who doesn't probably won't. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And he just, I guess he sort of had the same attitude about the travelers in the end that he did about the Canadian open. So, But at the travelers, we did get to see the PGA tour, the professional debut of Matt Wolf and Victor Hovland. They are, uh, Two incredible up-and-coming players. Ches Reevy won the thing, um, and he's you know entirely different character, and he's sort of shown uh, what happens if you are willing to persevere and just keep waiting. What were your thoughts on this week's tournament? Well, first of all, it was inter- interesting to see the new guys coming on, both uh, teammates at Oklahoma State, and uh, it's always good to get new blood in. Wolf is highly touted NCAA champ. With a bizarre swing, though, I have to say. I don't know if anybody saw it out there, but uh, one of the one of the strangest swings on the tour for sure. He pulls it way outside. By the time he's in his backswing, his, his club head's sitting right over top of his head. His left foot's off the ground. It's a baseball swing, basically. But he, he gets everything on plane by the time he's getting down the ball. Incredible amount of torque. Great hip turn, great shoulder turn, pounds the ball. Weird swing. Do you think they'll try and fiddle with it at all? Well, they better not. Not right now. I mean, I think it's one of the most exciting things to watch for the rest of the year is how him and, and Victor Hovland. So Hovland also did some sort of uh, a bizarre move where he started, I think, just in Sunday's round. He doesn't do it all the time, but sometimes with his driver, he, he'll take it back and literally, literally stop his backswing and then take it back further and hit it. It's, it looks like he's almost reaching for more power. I think I read that he sometimes fights, uh, fights the ball going right. And when he's doing that, the stopping his swing, he literally thinks what to do to draw the ball from this point and then does it. And I mean, imagine wouldn't, how many times have we thought, you know, when we're out there golfing, if only I could stop my swing halfway through, think about what I need to do and then do it. Yeah. <laughs> my God. I didn't think that was actually possible. <laughs> One thing I did notice at the U.S. Open was other players um, were watching Victor Hovland on the range. Like he, you don't see it that much, but I was watching guys, and they, they as they're walking by, they would stop and take a look. Like people, the even the pros, the world's best players, are interested in what this guy's got. And I think he led he led the uh, U.S. Open in strokes gained off the tee. So both Hovland and Wolf, I mean, they have to be uh, some of the big stories for the rest of the season. Which the rest of the season is. A little shorter than it used to be because with the PGA Tour schedule change, how do you feel? I, I thought I loved it, but now I'm not so sure with the summer's just started and we have we have one major left and we have to watch it at three in the morning. Yeah, I'm not a big fan in a way because, I don't know, being up here in Canada, you the weather isn't really starting. I mean, this this spring's been particularly bad, but even so, you're you're not really looking at good weather till mid-June and it's you're not in that, that golf frame of mind yet. I like the change of date for the PGA championship because it kind of got lost before, but now you've got three majors already out of the, out of the way and the Canadian open and the Canadian open, our major. Yeah. And it's not even July. So what do you have to look, look forward to really? I know. I think the PGA tour is obviously really trying to push the FedEx cup playoffs, but they've been doing that for years. The question is, 
obviously the super golf fan is is glued in or tuned in for that but can you get casual fans into the FedEx Cup I'm not sure in a Ryder Cup year you got that coming in the fall but but right now I mean you, it's exactly right you have three majors in the Canadian Open done before uh, some Canadians have played their first round of golf just just flipping back to Wolf and uh Hovland do you think we're going to see more young pe- young players come up with their own individual swings? Yeah, I actually do. I think we had the generation of all these guys with the exact sort of cookie cutter college swings, but this latest generation, these guys, they've all their competitive golf has been played with launch monitors, with TrackMan. So they've since they've been playing golf, it's all been checking the numbers, seeing what it's doing, seeing what it does to the ball flight and, and I think they've realized that, you know, it doesn't matter how you get there. It doesn't matter what the swing looks like until the moment you're hitting the ball. And if all the numbers work, you can get there any way you want. And if two of the top guys, two of the most highly touted prospects in, you know, generation, both have some unorthodox parts of their swing, of course, I think more people are going to, are going to see. And I think that's probably good for the game. Yeah, it makes it a little more interesting to get some personality out there. And there's certainly been guys in the past that have had unique swings and done all right. And Jim Furyk obviously comes to mind as probably the best example of that. He's made over $70 million in earnings on the tour, which is incredible if you think about it. And he's won like 17 PGA Tour events. And he shot 58 and 59. And he had shot 58 and 59. So I say keep those swings going. Yeah, we were talking a bit about Ches Reeve winning the Travelers. He is an inspirational story to everybody that is sort of going to hang in there and try to uh, to find the answer. So were you happy to see him win? Um, you know what? It's always nice when a guy continues to go out there week after week. He's battled through injuries. His last win actually came at the Canadian Open in 2008 at Glen Abbey. His rookie year. His rookie year. So it's been... Over 11 years since he last won, and I can't remember. What I like about Ches Reeve is that I saw he was in a practice group with Weir at Pebble Beach, so I was was walking with him, and I like that sort of – his torso from from the middle down, it, it's similar to kind of ours, okay. and I enjoy that. He, he's not, you know, he's not a fitness buff. He's got a little a little extra weight around the middle, and I think if I think that's going a long way to inspiring uh, men of our age, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you can't say his his victory was uh, totally a surprise either, because he's had a pretty good year, and he came in third at the U.S. Open, mm-hmm. and he leads the tour this year in driving accuracy. And, you know, you hit the ball in the fairway all the time. If you're leading the tour and driving accuracy, you're going to give yourself chances. So. And I, I read a story recently, too, that so he plays at Whisper Rock where tons of the of the pros play. And it's very competitive. There's amateurs there that, you know, don't take shots from PGA Tour pros. It is a highly competitive golf club. And there's the, there was, I guess before the U.S. Open, there was words out of there that he, that he had shot 261s in the week before the U.S. Open. So people knew that his game was in form. And then, you know, he had, what, he finished third at the U.S. Open. Um, so, no, definitely he is, um, he deserves it, fully deserves it, and he shows what perseverance does. He's not the only guy that's persevered, though. I just had a quick look. So it's been 250 events since he had won, which is a hell of a long time. I think I've read Dustin Johnson has won 20 times since he last won. <laughs> that sounds about right. It's almost four, it was 4,000 days. So to keep going, it's it's amazing. And he doesn't even hold the futility record, actually. There's a couple other guys. Robert Gamez, 1990s. Robert Gamez. Mm-hmm. I remember him. Yeah. Household name almost. <laughs> 
Anyway, he won in January. The Tucson Open in 1990. Then in March, he won the Nesley Invitational at Bay Hill. So within a couple months, he'd won two tournaments. He did not win again till September 30th, 2005 at the Valero Texas Open. Corey Connors, a Canadian, happened to win there this year. Anyway, that was 15 years, six months, 396 <laughs> starts. Good for him. We actually have our own. Uh, we have our own guy to root for in the perseverance department and it's mike Weir. yeah we, we've both seen him recently he was at the canadian open i saw him at the u.s open where he sectional qualified he's playing in the the new tournament in detroit the rocket mortgage classic so he's gonna have you know three pga tour starts uh you know in a matter of a month and he's his, his game is actually it's in good shape right now i followed him for a practice round at pebble beach he was playing with ches Revi and uh who's he was at david toms was in the practice group and you know, Weir was probably that day was hitting it better than all of them. He was, uh, he almost made an ace on one hole. He, a few fans gave him a smattering of applause when he tapped in his birdie. But right, he, right. He was playing well. And I spoke to him after and he said, you know, the game is in good shape. It's as good as it's been in years. He's having trouble bringing it to the course and he's having trouble, he says, especially getting four straight days of it. But he is optimistic about his game and he is just the true grinder. He, he just loves no, I don't know if he loves it, but he seems to love trying to figure it out and just working. It's sort of who he is. Yeah. You know, I was a little surprised uh, that he didn't make the cut at the Canadian Open because when I talked to him during the practice rounds, he was in a very good frame of mind, says he hasn't been healthier in a long time, and he just seemed to be in a really good place. So that was a bit disappointing. Um, yeah, he's a guy that loves to get out there and play, loves to compete. He's 49. Yeah. So... You know, father time catches up with any everybody. I'd love to see Mike win again. I am never want to say that he won't, but I think that's more likely to happen on the Champions Tour, although he's got a chance maybe this week in he's Detroit. He's in Detroit. Yeah, the field's not that that deep, but I mean, it's still obviously going to be a huge stretch for him to win on the PGA Tour. But for me, it's funny. It's sort of, I've turned the page on, I, I, I don't feel any sorrow about how Mike Weir used to be third in the world, won the Masters. I know you talk to some Canadian golf fans. They're like, oh, why is he still at it? But to me, I find it inspirational now that there's this guy, he spent six years on a mini tour, on the mini tours before he gets to the PGA Tour. And then he, then he has his early years figuring out, makes himself a Masters champion. And it's he's been doing the same thing his whole life. Like he's still doing what he did then, which is figure it out, try and work it out on the range and bring it to the golf course. And I find that inspirational. My favorite story from where it's funny, most people would picture him getting the green jacket slipped on him in 2003. I think of the 2012 Masters and I was covering it and I, I was on the range Saturday afternoon looking for somebody and there's no one, no players on there. The range is empty, but down at the far end is Mike Weir. He'd missed the cut. You know, he was playing very poorly in 2012, battling injury. But here he was Saturday afternoon at the Masters when he could be in the clubhouse with his green jacket on, you know, having drinks and having people slap him on the back. Yeah. He's at the end of the range working on it. Right. And I asked him about it. I said, you know, do you remember that? I asked him this year and he doesn't, he doesn't remember it at all. But he said, you know, that's just what I do. He says, I'm not going to sit and be miserable and try and, oh, I didn't play well. I'm going to go out the next day, figure out why I didn't play well and try and play better tomorrow. And that's sort of every, we always say, or everybody always says, it's about the journey, not the not the destination. Right. But how many people actually are willing to live it like that? And I think yeah. that's what he does. Like he's 
he's he loves the journey. He's fully engaged in the journey. And if that doesn't make some Canadian golf fan happy, uh, who cares? It's it's who he is, and I think he's somebody to look up to at this point for sure. I agree, hundred percent. Now another forty uh, nine year old that's going to be in Detroit this week at the. Rocket Mortgage Classic. Rocket. Well, that rolls off your tongue, I'll tell you. That's a beautiful. It's Detroit's name. major. I don't know if you heard that, but that, <laughs> that is their slogan, Detroit's major. So uh, we will agree that it's Detroit's major and that Detroit is major. Yeah. There's a few big names in the tournament. Dustin Johnson's there. I think Bubba Watson, Gary Woodland's yeah, going to be cool. Fowler. Ricky Fowler. And another big name from the past, at least, Ernie Els, now 49 himself and really staring down a career on the Champions Tour. He seems more happy with life on the Champions Tour, perhaps. And like a guy like like we're actually, it doesn't seem like he wants to say that that's for sure where he wants to be. He still thinks if he finds his game and happens to to get his card somehow, he'd like to be in the PGA Tour. But again, for Weir, it's all about the process. I think Ernie is more of a, he's like a true sportsman. He likes the competition. So he wants to get back out there with the guys he used to play against and I think his game will come back when he feels the competitive fire of the Champions Tour gets a bit more comfortable. Because, I mean, quite frankly, we, he's you've, you can see the frustration sometimes in, yeah. in his game out on the PGA Tour. He's had a, Ernie's had a rough year. Yeah. He's yeah. missed a lot of cuts. Yeah, and he's at the Rocket Mortgage Classic. And who is also at the Rocket Mortgage Classic is Brennan Little, Gary Woodland's caddy. And on Monday, we had a chance to talk to Brennan when he first arrived to Detroit. Um, we'll go to that interview now. This is Brendan Little. He won the U.S. Open with Gary Woodland at Pebble Beach. He won the Masters with Mike Weir in 2003. He was on the bag for all of Mike Weir's PGA Tour wins. And we'll now throw an interview with Brendan Little from St. Thomas, Ontario. We'd like to welcome Canadian PGA Tour caddy Brendan Little to the show. Brendan's fresh off a U.S. Open victory with Gary Woodland. Brendan, thanks for coming on. So how are things? Yeah, things are good. Um, you know, the U.S. Open behind me now. It's time to uh, move on and get after it again this week. See if we can't uh, keep the good things rolling. Yeah, you're back at work. You're in Detroit. Have uh, Did you get a, a nice greeting from all your friends there? So, uh, congratulating you? Oh, yeah. It's, a, it's all good. You know, I got a lot of texts, and it's nice to see people. But, um, yep, everything's great. And it's funny how couple days of congratulations, and then you're right back at it. So talking about your uh, the win at the U.S. Open, so you've won now two majors. You won with Mike Weir in 2003 at the Masters. How did the, uh, what was the feelings? How did they, how did they compare? I mean, one was a long time ago. Can you even remember how that one felt? And, and how did the two compare? Uh, yeah, well, I definitely remember how it felt. I mean, they're both amazing, great feelings. I mean, one of the reasons you're out here is, not only to make a living, but it's nice if you're going to do that to try to get in contention and win tournaments, you know, have your player win tournaments. Uh, I would say a little bit different feelings is, you know, they're 15 or 16 years apart. I'm a little older now, um, obviously with kids. So the, the feelings are different, but they're both very special. Mm-hmm. And how about the celebration? I mean, uh, one was, what, 16 years ago, your younger man. Was that celebration a little different than uh, the one yeah, last the week? Celebrations were uh, definitely a lot different. That one, we had a good time back at the house in Augusta, and then we flew up to Toronto, and Mike dropped the puck the next day. Uh, we had a, a pretty good few days back in T.O., and uh, this one was drive to the airport at 7 a.m. or whatever it was, 6 a.m. for an early flight from San Fran to get home to watch kids baseball. So definitely a little bit different. 
That's funny. I, I remember reading a story about the Masters win. Is it true that you might have played a, a hole or two in the dark at Augusta after the after the win? Well, let's not go a couple. Let's see. Yeah, one, actually. Um, I had to go get, the deal was I had to go get my car. In the old days, we used to park right off number two. And they had, it was a gated area and they were closing the gate at like nine o'clock. So Mike was doing his media and his agent said, yeah, we'll meet you back at his house, the, the, the house he had rented for the week. So, uh, I was with another guy who actually caddies for Fred Couples now, Mark Cheney. And he's like, I got the bag. Let's go. So we, the, the old caddy room used to be right about a hundred yards off the first tee. So it was dark. He ends up dropping it and I played left-handed <laughs> with Mike's clubs. Well, I actually, I, I know that you are a, uh, you were an accomplished golfer yourself. Uh, how did you meet Mike? You, you played junior golf against him and you were friends with him. Is that, is that true? Yeah, we met when we were probably 12 or 13, played junior golf together. Um, he went to BYU. I went to New Mexico State, so we played some college golf and then traveled a little bit on the Canadian tour and a little bit in Asia one year we played. So I've known him, you know, basically my whole life. Okay, let's go back to Pebble Beach, the U.S. Open. Um, the two shots that I think most fans are going to remember, the one that I think was the shot of the tournament was the uh, the second shot on 14, the par 5. So you had a one-shot lead. Brooks Kepka's uh, one hole ahead. He had a birdie putt that would have would have tied uh, you guys at the time. He missed that, but I don't think you guys knew that at the time. So you had you had two choices. I mean, you could lay up or you could go for it. And Gary gave you a lot of credit for the decision. Can you sort of talk me through that shot and that decision? Yeah, I, to be honest with you, I mean, we talked a few weeks ago, and he he was talking about playing a little more aggressive. Um, my I'm uh, not tendencies, I guess, but I like to try to get the ball around, get it in play. He, his his mentality is a little more, you know, aggressive, hit more drivers. So we had a little talk about that. He got to that shot. I never, ever thought about laying that up because we had a pretty good number mm -hmm. as it was, you know, the way it was. And you can always hit it long there and you're still going to be able to chip it somewhat close, you know, 15, 20 feet. Laying it up there, I think that's a really, really tough wedge shot because we would, you have to lay it back to far enough where you can get a little spin on the ball. It's not like you can hit it right up short of the bunker and have a 20-yard pitch shot. So we would have had to hit something, you know, 160, 70 yards, leave yourself about 90. And like I say, that's a, that's a I mean, over my years at, at Pebble, that's always a tough wedge shot to get close. Mm -hmm. So I never thought for a minute. I mean, he, he brought it up about laying it up, and I was like, no, no. Rewood, get it up there. Yeah, so he said. So, obviously, it turned out the way it turned out was, you know, it must have, I didn't, I haven't seen it yet, but it must have hit just over the bunker. Oh, it was absolutely beautiful. It was, uh, it was, it looked yeah. like one of those, you won't say once in a lifetime shots, but it was just, it was just dead perfect. So he was, uh, yeah. was he favoring layup or he was just bringing it up as a discussion or, or are you not sure? Well, no, he brought it up. He's like, where, where should we hit this? Um, what's long right like? And I'm like, long right's not very good, but you know, it's playable long over the middle. If it lands on the green, I figured he wasn't going to fly it over the green. I think we had 260 cover. Mm -hmm. So 280 in, in that weather. Um, you know, I figured it might land on the green and roll over the back. Even if it goes over into the rough back there, you can always bump it into the hill and hit it down there, you know, a decent chip and get it close. Long right's not very good and left is not the end of the world is that green kind of slopes down towards the left. So even if you hit it in the left stands or in the rough, you're pitching it back up into the hill. What a difference that would have been, I mean, with Kepka one hole ahead at the time, one shot behind. If you're laying up and you're a par wouldn't be that easy, but definitely on the closing stretch, a two-shot lead is much better than a one-shot lead. I almost think that, in my mind, that was the shot of the tournament. 
how much convincing sort of uh, are you ready to do? And and how what do you do when when you you know, I've seen my favorite move a caddy does is he sort of seems to leave the bag there beside the player for uh, a little longer than normal if he's not sure about about a club choice. Is that something that you've done or what do you do when you're not when you want to sort of let the guy know that you're not sure of his of his choice? Not that that happened on that hole, but in general. Oh, uh, yeah, no, I'll tell him. I mean, uh, normally we're, we're we're on the same page. I can tell sometimes if there's a shot that he's not comfortable with. And, you know, normally if, if he's going to lay it up and he says, I want to lay this up. I'm not going to talk him into hitting a shot if there's trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, if we discuss things, you know, where is the place to hit it, this and that, and, and we decide that laying it up, you know, to 50, 60, 80 yards, whatever is fine. I've got no problem with it. I just, I don't, I've never ever liked that wedge shot because you're, you're 10 or 12 yards uphill, the green slopes away from you, um, you know, hitting it short in the bunker, it buries. So really on that shot, there wasn't, in, in my opinion, I never, ever thought about laying it up. Mm-hmm. Great. And then the next shot, the one that everybody probably years from now might remember is the, uh, the, you know, the pitcher chip off the green at 17. Tell me a bit about that one. In my mind, it, it almost looked like there was almost no other option. I mean, a putt from there didn't look like it would, it would be very hard to get it close. Does that sometimes make a shot... Uh, as a player, maybe make it a little easier when there's zero options. So you sort of know this is, this is all I've got. So it's almost easier to commit to it. Yeah, I think 100%. I mean, he had, he had that same shot early in the week on the same hole. The pin was kind of tucked on the, the left side of the green, but on the right edge and he hit it right again and he had to chip it. Um, and same with this one. I mean, the best he was going to do is putt it. Even if he perfectly rolled it right to the edge of the, the, the first cut, it was going to go down and, and move left hard, probably, you know, 15 feet would have been, would have been a good shot or a good putt. Mm-hmm. So there really was no option. And he's also hit that shot a lot. I and mean, he used to work with a guy in Dallas and they used to chip off the greens a lot uh, for contact. Huh. So uh, it's not like he hasn't done that before. So really, it, I think when he, we got up there, he's like, I can't putt this, can I? I'm like, nope. <laughs> so I think that right away made a decision and uh, there was no looking back. And how great is it in, the, in the, these major victories? You often can find some funny sort of backstory that almost seems like it was meant to be like, what are the chances that he's practiced uh, a fair amount, you know, chipping the ball off of a green, probably more than most players in the field, but it's these little moments that sometimes do it for you, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's, you you know, you got to get some good breaks. Uh, The chip in on Saturday was really, I I think the telling when he chipped in on 13 and then made the bomb on 14 for two pars. Mm Mm-hmm. That kind of that kind of kept things, you know, on track and and kept the lead, and uh, I think that was that was really big for him on Saturday. And then obviously, you know, you get a couple good breaks. He made a on thirteen again. He made a, a great par after hitting it way right off the tee, um, and then the birdie on fourteen. And you know, and Brooks didn't birdie eighteen, which helps with a two stroke lead on that tee rather than a one stroke lead. Uh, the way you play the hole, so you know, things you got to get good breaks, and uh, you obviously have to play good golf, but. It's nice to have a little a break here and there too. For sure. Did you trust that scoreboard when you saw it going to eighteen, or were you like triple checking? Like, are we sure we have a two shot lead here? No, I actually we had this guy Lewis, the camera guy, with us, and who had the earpiece. And when we walked off the green, I said, I said to him, I said, "Do we have a two stroke lead?" And he's like, "Hang on," and he radioed in or whatever he did. And he said, "Yeah, you do." Uh-huh. He finished at ten, we were twelve. So I made sure I saw that scoreboard, but. You know, you got to be really careful. You got volunteers putting up scores there, and if it, it shows you have a two-stroke lead, and you only have a one-stroke lead. You know, I, I would I would be pretty disappointed in myself. 
yeah. if something was to happen. And what did you guys talk about Sunday? I mean, obviously, you need to try to keep your man loose. I'm sure it looked like he was feeling pretty loose anyways. But what do you do as a caddy to try to keep a guy, you know, level-headed and feeling good about things on a Sunday that there's obviously a ton of pressure on him? Yeah, just the same things. I mean, we have a lot of a lot in common. He and I sports. You know, talk Raptors, talk a little hockey. Um, I'm trying to get him a little more into the hockey, um, <laughs> the hockey atmosphere because he's not much of a hockey guy growing up in Kansas. But you know, we talk a little bit about it, it's mostly sports. Yeah. But there's all we have a lot in common, so we're always talking about something. That's funny. I've I've never heard as much Raptors talk at majors that I've heard in the last uh, at the PGA Championship in the U.S. Open. It's it's pretty uh, different. Well, it's funny. He's a basketball fan. I'm not much of a basketball fan. Um, I, I can't tell you the last time I actually watched a full basketball game, and I probably watched the entire finals. <laughs> so, I mean, it's nice to to root for a home team. Um, and I, you know, I thought the Raps were great this year, but. To be honest with you, he's more of the basketball fan than I am. Um, so talking about the caddy-player relationship, you know, a lot of guys, um, there's different kinds of players. There's players that are, uh, you know, sort of blame get blame themselves and sort of motivate themselves through that. There's players that sometimes could turn on the caddy and, and blame their caddy for, for, for uh, mistakes. And often it's not because they really want to blame the caddy, but they're just trying to sort of, it seems like, keep their... They want to keep their mind clear. So what, as a caddy, sometimes on, we watch on TV and it looks like, oh, this doesn't look fair what, what he's doing to his caddy. But if you have that type of player that needs to sort of try and unload his frustrations, do, do most caddies understand that? And is, it, is it, or are they okay with it? Or is it dependent on the relationship that you have with your player? Yeah, I think it depends on the relationship, first of all. And I also think as, as a caddy, yeah, you need to realize that some guys do that. Mm-hmm. And they don't, they're, they're not taking it out on you. It's just a way to get rid of some frustration. There's obviously a point where you can only, you know, you can take so much. I mean, some guys are, are very, very hard all the time. Then it gets a little carried away. Gary's really not that way. Um, when he gets mad, he gets mad at himself. And I just let him go. I've tried to cheer him up before and he doesn't like that. Oh. So he's pretty easy. He just rambles on himself for a hole and, uh, He's got a, a great trait in the fact that anytime he makes a, generally anytime he makes a mistake, he doesn't compound it with another one. Mm-hmm. That's so great. I've never really had to step in. I tried early on, and he's just like, "Hey, I don't, I don't want a cheerleader. I'm fine." Huh. So now I just walk ahead and go, and he gets mad for half a hole, and then he fixes it. And what about the uh, very odd time that you know perhaps you do make a mistake or something? How does how do you handle it with him? What does he like to? How does he like to handle that? Yeah, that's easy. I mean, if it's my mistake, I just say my bad, and mm-hmm. he gets right over it. Uh, he he told me that early on. He's like, listen, if you make a mistake and you admit it, that's fine. It's gone. I won't say anything. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't, then he, it kind of festers. So if there is a mistake somewhere where I lay him up in a wrong spot or I talk him out of a club, I just say my bad, Yeah, and then it's done. And do you, th- he do you think he, it festers in, in that he um, he's not sure if, if he made – the mistake or if you did or he just means he doesn't he doesn't want anything to come between you guys on the course i really don't know mm-hmm. i mean it's it doesn't happen that often i mean we, we're pretty much on the same page if, if we both think it's a seven iron and you know he hits a seven iron and it's comes up on the front edge of the green which isn't a bad spot it's that's fine um if it's a back ten and we hit it over the green where it's dead you know i'll just say hey my bad and it, it's gone he doesn't say anything um there's been a few times where i haven't said it and you know, and he lets me know. Hmm. So, that's, yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, let's talk a bit about Gary. So he's 35 years old. Um, 
but I think he's one of the, he's a, a very interesting 35 year old first time major winner and that but we've all heard about his background in the past week, how he had a basketball scholarship and sort of didn't take golf as his only sport until his you know second year of university. So he probably, at least in my mind, he'd have more potential than it, than almost any 35 year old first time major winner. Do you think there's like a lot of potential more than you would find in most 35 year olds? Yeah, I think so. I mean, this is a good time for him. His game's kind of, um, his game's just gotten better over the last three or four years. He's got some good people around him. I mean, a good short game coach, a good putting coach. And I think he's just kind of coming into the prime of his career. Um, as far as understanding his game and knowing what he needs to work on, he realized his putting and his chipping wasn't very good. He went out and got some help. And, you know, it's really, it obviously came together last week. But over the last two years, really, it's, he's just kind of improved and improved. So I, I, I definitely see, you know, a lot of potential from him. And you've caddied for a number of players, you know, Mike and Sean O'Hare, Camilo Vijegas and, and Gary. When you started with Gary, did you see, uh, did you see a ton of potential there? Or was it, you know, what, what were your first impressions of him? Uh, 2016, I guess, is when you guys started. Yeah, no, I saw it right away. I mean, he, he's obviously a great ball striker. Um, anytime you're a good ball striker like that, if you get hot once in a while with the putter, you're going to play well. Because he drives, you know, he drives it better now than he did when I started. But he's always been a great iron player. Mm-hmm. And when you hit it that far, you're giving yourself a lot of, you know, you're, you're giving yourself a lot of irons. So, I mean, most par fives are reachable. He's not really hitting too many long irons in the par fours. So I, I knew right away he was a good player, obviously from what he'd done in the past, and he's taken it to a new level now, which is a lot of credit to him because a lot of guys don't focus on their weaknesses. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll go to the range and hit balls because that's what they're comfortable with. He's kind of gone the other way and said, okay, you know, he doesn't really hit balls after rounds. He practices hard at home, and then when he comes out into the tournament, you know, he'll work some short game and kind of relax, take it easy, just tr- trying to play well that week. Yeah, and and that's that's interesting. And you, t- you talk about, you played most of your career was with Mike. They seem, obviously, their style of play is, is very different. I mean, Gary's hits it a ton, and he's a fantastic ball striker. Mike has one of the great short games that that we saw when he was in his prime. So there are very different players on the course. How about their demeanor off the course? Are they, uh, are they equally opposite as in their personality on the course or how, what's it like being a caddy for two players that are so different on the course? And I don't know what they're like, uh, their personalities, but are they very different? Um, off the course, they're not. I mean, you know, Mike's same guy. He's a, he's a sports guy. He's pretty laid back on the course. They're completely opposite tournament weeks. Mike's more of a grinder, very detail-oriented. I mean, carried his own yardage book. He kind of knew where to hit it. Worked his way around the golf course differently than Gary. Gary's more vomit. But, I mean, you got to play to your strengths, right? Mike was a, 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 one of the best wedge players, short game guys. So, you know, if it was a par five rather than blast it up there in the rough, he would get it into 70, 80 yards and most of the time make birdie. You know, Gary's more go for it, get it up by the green and let's get it up and down or get it on the green and try to make eagle. So their personalities on the golf course are completely opposite. Yeah. And and with Gary, do you uh, so he I think he seems more like you sort of you're find a find him a target, give him a number and he's just let it let it go. Is that sort of what he's like? Is he? uh, Yeah. Yeah. Mike and I used to kind of discuss every shot, what kind of shot he was hitting, where he was aiming. Um, you know, on golf courses, the first round or two, if it's a new course, I'll just give him a target. I'll say, you know, your middle's the right side of the TV tower. 
And then sometimes, um, you know, I'll say favor the right or favor the left if one side's better than the other. And then by the end of the week, you know, he doesn't really ask for targets or it's, you know, he, he has a pretty good idea of what he's doing. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's totally different from what Mike and I did. Mm-hmm. And so now you're in Detroit at the Rocket Mortgage Classic. Have you, uh, is Gary there yet? Have you had a chance to see him since your week off? I have not. I, I went out early this morning, walked the golf course, and uh, I'm about to meet him here in about a half hour. Oh, that's fantastic. So I hear that you travel with a fishing rod. I normally do. Yes, I love fishing. Probably, uh, I would say I fish more than I do. It's probably my my number one hobby right now. I kind of I, I always liked fishing, and then over the last three or four years living in Texas, uh, I got into bass fishing. And normally, golf courses are great for fishing because a lot of times they don't let people fish mm-hmm. until the weeks of the tournament. So there's a, there's a handful of us that'll get around golf courses, and it's usually very good. <laughs> That's great. And when do you find time to fish? You go out early in the morning or in at uh, evening or what? Uh, either time. Yeah. Generally at night when you're done. You know, unless the, the tour championship in Atlanta is great because it's a small field and I, we always get done. Nobody left on the golf course. So I'll, I'll always go out for an hour or two after the round or even the practice rounds. Obviously, when there's a tournament on, it's, it's tough Thursday, Friday because, you know, there's so many players on the golf course. I'm not going to go out and fish, you know, when, when guys are playing. But <laughs> Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, we'll get out if we can and fish a little bit and have some fun. Got to get those golfers out of the way so you can fish. Um, That's so right. 21 years as a caddy. When you started, I get, you know, working with Mike, it was, he was sort of a, he was a friend. And did you ever foresee that you'd have, you know, a couple decades as a caddy when you first started? No, never did. I, I wasn't, to be honest, when I started, I wasn't sure how long I was going to do it. And then after, kind of after my run with Mike, I was kind of looking at some other options. And, you know, I've always kind of looked at other options. But to be honest with you, I just don't know what else I would do that I really enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I've made a good living doing this. And to be honest, I only work about 25 to 30 weeks a year. I know I'm gone a lot, you know, which I, I hate when kids have baseball tournaments or there's events going on I'm not there for, but you also have to look at the other side. If I am going to start something, I'm going to be behind the eight ball and probably have to work twice as hard as anyone else because yeah. I'm almost 50 and, and to start a new job at this age is tough. So and we'll the, just keep rolling with it. For sure. And I guess last week's win, if anything, if you needed any re-motivation, there it is. I mean, uh, you've got a lot to look forward to with Gary. Yeah, that's right. I'll just, uh, yeah, we'll keep rolling on now. All right, great. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. Brennan, thanks for coming on during uh, work week. It was awesome to hear the stories. And again, congratulations on the U.S. Open and good luck the rest of the year. Yeah, thanks very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Take care. We want to thank Brennan Little for giving us some time there in Detroit. We also want to thank you for listening to the first forecast podcast. I'm John McCarthy at John McCarthy Sun on Twitter. I'm Dave Hilson, Dave underscore Hilson on Twitter. And we'll be back next week with another one. Thank you. Bye.